And not only did he have a relationship with the government, but he had a role in the FBI. In this world, you look out for number one. Few, if any, people take that oath to the grave. These guys are on the streets, so they're involved in, in hustling. All right, welcome back to the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein, and I'm very, very glad to welcome a very special guest uh, who has just written an outstanding new book that uh, adds a lot of new context to the Jimmy Hoffa disappearance saga. Um, His name is Dr. Jack Goldsmith. Uh, He is a a law professor at Harvard University, and uh, he is... A, uh, a friend of the program, and uh, we're very excited to, to have him on board. Uh, thanks a lot, Jack, for joining us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Yeah. Uh, so, Jack, Jack, you're not a doctor, are you? I'm not a doctor. I called I you a doctor. A jur- I have a Juris Doctorate degree, but it's not traditional to call lawyers doctors. Okay. Well, uh, but I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> very esteemed guest, Jack Goldsmith, and his book is titled In Hoffa's Shadow, uh, A Stepfather, A Disappearance in Detroit, and My Search for the Truth. Jack has a very personal uh, connection to uh, the Hoffa case through uh, Hoffa's surrogate son, Chucky O'Brien, who was Jack's stepdad. Um, so, Jack, why don't you to kind of uh, tell us uh, about uh, your journey in uh, you know crafting this you know what I consider a real masterpiece and something that really uh, was needed to come out come into the uh, the library of Hoffa research and, and really kind of set the record straight about Chucky O'Brien who's one of the more intriguing characters in this saga. So why don't you kind of tell us about how this you know this book project came about? Sure. So it's a, a little bit of a long story. So just break it up if I'm, if I'm talking too much. All right. No um, worries. So it starts when I was 12 years old, and um, my mom married Chucky O'Brien. As your audience probably knows, Chucky was Hoffa's longtime aide. He had met Jimmy Hoffa when he was nine years old. He uh, was very close to Hoffa growing up. At at a very early age, age 23, he actually, when he was 19, he started serving as Hoffa's kind of uh, closest aide, he would travel with them. He became special assistant to the general president when Hoffa became the president of the Teamsters. He was basically by Hoffa's side all the time from the early 50s until Hoffa went to jail in 67. And then he was very close to him in the years after the after he, Hoffa got out of jail in the 70s. And didn't, didn't, about, he, didn't he live with Hoffa for a while in his childhood? Well, he didn't. So yes and no. I mean, he... He didn't live full-time with Hoffa in his childhood. He, would, he lived with his mom, but he would often spend weekends at the Hoffa home out, out at the lake. Uh, and they spent a ton of time together. And certainly when, um, when Hoffa became the general president, he and his wife and his family moved in to the Hoffa home on ropes and, and basically raised the Hoffa children and took care of the Hoffa family and took care of Josephine. So it was all, they were just extremely close. Chucky's mom, Sylvia, was... Josephine Hoffa's closest friend, and she basically took care of Josephine. Chucky's mom was very close to Hoffa, and Chucky was just intimately close to Hoffa. Many people, Dan Muldea said in his book that the conventional wisdom was that Chucky was Hoffa's illegitimate child, and a lot of people believed that he was Hoffa's son. They were so close. And and Sylvia Pagano, who was Chucky's mom, was kind of a a paramour um, in certain Midwest underworld uh, underworld circles. Chucky was born in Kansas City. Um, his father was a uh, kind of a, a mob bodyguard for a, a very prominent underworld figure in, in Kansas City named uh, uh, Charlie Benaggio, right. um, who That's was right. the godfather of uh, uh, of Missouri. And, and uh, Chucky's mom, her mom was Chucky's family on her maternal side were kind of old guys and uh, crime guys, Italian crime guys in uh, in. Um, Kansas City. So he knew and grew up in the whole Kansas City milieu. So you met Chucky when you were nine years old, and this was all around the same time in the same period that that the Hoffa uh, mystery was kind of percolating. Yeah. So I I was actually 12. And I met Chucky came into my life when I was 12 years old. I had never really had a father. My father left when I was a young age. I was never close to him. And I had a stepfather that I wasn't close to. Chucky comes into our lives basically in January of 1975, about seven months before Hoffa disappears. He and my mom have this very intense courtship and relationship. 
he immediately becomes like my stepfather even before they got married. He and I grew very close. He showered me, me with affection and attention that I had never received from a man before, and I just idolized him. What do you think he did? What do I think he did? When? No, when you were 12 years old and you met the man that oh, your I mom was going to marry. Teamsters. I knew he was in the Teamsters, but I didn't know what the Teamsters were. I mean, I knew it had to do with labor unions, and he always wore Teamsters paraphernalia. But that was kind of in the background until Hoffa disappeared. I didn't really pay Did he seem like a powerful person to you, like someone that had you know a lot of juice? Colorful, did you say? Yeah, I said when you were, you know, let's say between January and when Hoffa yeah. disappeared okay. and before and you talk, kind of yeah, me, understood the full try. context. Yeah. Right. So um, he was like a bolt out of the blue. He was this amazing guy who suddenly there was someone who cared about my sports, who took me to baseball and basketball games on the weekend, who came to my games, who was interested in my comic book collection and helped me to work on the collection who would work, you know, help me practice baseball, who just gave me tons of love and attention and focus and care that I never had before. And he was this kind of outsized personality. He was something of a bullshit artist, but I kind of thought it was funny. And he seemed to know everybody, something I later came to be suspicious of, but he seemed to be friends with everyone. And he was just this great guy who suddenly was my father. And he was also kind of gave us, gave me physical security. My mom wasn't terribly well. And basically, at least until the Hoffa disappearance, uh, it was just our, my life improved enormously, and I was very, very happy with him in my life. And this was, uh, you, you were living in Memphis at this time. This wasn't in West Detroit. Memphis, West Memphis, Arkansas, right across right. the river. So how did uh, Chucky end up meeting your mother? His mom, Sylvie Pagano, who we spoke to a second ago, right. met my mother's mother uh, by accident at a hotel pool in Miami Beach in the 60s. And they became very close friends. They were two independent, uh, tough women, and they became close friends and traveled a lot. And it was through them that Chucky met my mom, Brenda. They met for the first time in the late 60s when Chucky courted my mom a little bit, but my mom uh, wasn't interested in him then and married someone else. And then um, when my mom was really down and out in the late, late 1974 after her second divorce. She had tried to kill herself. She was having mental health problems. She was in a bad way, and she had three small boys, and she reached out to Chucky right at the time he was having a falling out with Hoffa for complicated reasons we can discuss if you like. And they both immediately glommed on to one another as kind of the saviors from a very bad situation they were both in. They had a whirlwind courtship, and they got married in June of... 1975, six weeks before Hoffa disappeared. Yeah, so why don't we go back and kind of talk about the... Uh, the, uh, the kind of the breakup of the relationship between Hoffa and uh, Chucky O'Brien, there was uh, some some festering animosities and tensions that were boiling um, to the surface uh, around the time that, that Hoffa vanished from a uh, Bloomfield Township, Michigan parking lot uh, on July 30th, 1975. As we all know, it's the most iconic unsolved mystery in American history and uh, still resonates to this very day, which is why this is uh, this book in Hoffa Shadow uh, by Jack Goldsmith is such an important um, addition to this uh, to the research saga. Um, so why don't we talk about, you know, how uh, they, they fell out with each other after, you know, so many years of, of being so sure. close and, and Hoffa yeah. being a father figure to, to Chucky. So this is the best way I could tell by putting it together. When Hoffa gets out of jail in 71, he is desperate to get his union back. And as you know, he couldn't get the union back primarily because Nixon had put a condition on the commutation of the Senate. So there was a legal bar to doing it. Now, real quick, did you do you think, this has always been a debate and we've talked about it on this podcast, do you think that Hoffa was in the dark about that clause in the uh, commutation? Yeah, there's been a lot of controversy about that, as you know. I'm pretty confident that I definitively show in the book through a whole lot of reasons, and Chucky confirms also based on his conversations with Hoffa. Hoffa was well aware of that condition. He basically agreed to it as part of the deal to get out. Chucky said he knew about it. There's lots of evidence that he knew about it. I document all the evidence in the book. He claims he didn't know about it later, but he clearly did. Chucky says he did. And Chucky says, look, he was so desperate to get out, he would have done anything, and he so he accepted that condition, and then he said... When I get out, I'll I'll try to fix it, and that's what he tried to do. And let's he definitely just, knew about the condition. Let's th- let the audience know, and we should have probably said this right off the bat. Chucky O'Brien is your main source for this book, 
I mean, this this is you and Chuck. That. No, no, I wouldn't. I would say yeah. We, yeah. One of your one of your primary sources. He's my main source in the sense that I interviewed him for thousands of hours, but I also interviewed every FBI agent right. alive who worked the case. I looked at probably tens of thousands of pages of government documents, many of which have not been examined for the case. I just but want to make clear point, to the audience that Chucky e. O'Brien participated in this project. Yeah, with you. he absolutely did. I mean, we talked for you know, in recorded conversations for many, many, many hundreds, probably over a thousand hours. And he really hasn't gone on the record that much in the last hardly at all. 40 years, hardly 45 all. years. Yeah. Right. But so on it's a, coup, so it's a coup for you. But on this point on the condition, um, it, you know, Chucky e. says often knew about it, but that's not the main piece of evidence. There's lots of evidence that James knew about it, that it's, um, one of Hoffa's lawyers, I can't remember which one, I think it was, um, oh, what was his name? Um, the St. Louis lawyer. I can't remember his name. Morris Schenker? Morris Schenker was on the record saying, of course, Hoffman knew about it. He, 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 they never would have let him get out of jail. Otherwise, it was clear. Nixon made it clear. It was just clear from everyone that they would not let Hoffman out without his condition. Right. Hoffman well, knew it. Everybody but, knew it. I present a lot of evidence for that in the book. So that's a small point, but that was actually, it was a large consequential point because whether he knew about it or not, this condition was what kept him from getting the union back, and it's what increasingly drove him to act more and more irrational after he gets out of jail. And, and making asked, a lot of threats to some very dangerous people. Yeah, I'll get to that one thing, exactly. But you asked about his relationship with Chucky in the fallout, so when Hoppe gets out of jail, Chucky goes back to his role as Hoppe's close to state, and basically Hoppe's out at the lake, and he's got nothing to do, he's got time on his hands, Chucky's out there every day with them. They're redoing the cottage. They're building, uh, you know, they're building new things. They're adding rooms to the cottage. They're paving the road. They're fixing the grass. Basically, he's out there trying to keep Hoffa busy, and Hoffa's going increasingly stir-crazy out there. Over the next three years, between the time Hoffa, three and a half years, between the time Hoffa gets out of jail and the time he disappears, he and Chucky grow apart for a whole bunch of reasons. One, Chucky's in this impossible situation where He's technically working for Frank Fitzsimmons. Fitzsimmons is his employer. He's out there. And Frank Fitzsimmons with, is was Hoffa's uh, protege in the union. Was his vice president, and then eventually became uh, his successor as the as the president of the union when he had to uh, relinquish the the reins in prison in order to get the commutation from Nixon. I'm just trying to fill the audience in on yeah, some of the right. particulars. I'm, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right. Not only that, it was Nick, it was Hoffa who chose Fitzsimmons as his successor thinking that he would be a loyal, uh, basically loyal caretaker, as Hoffa put it. Fitzsimmons liked the job and ended up basically double-crossing Hoffa, keeping the job, and arranging for Hoffa to get out. But Fitzsimmons, as I show in the in the chapter on Nixon, was heavily involved in ensuring that Hoffa wouldn't be able to uh, win back the Teamsters. So Fitzsimmons was in charge of the Teamsters Union. That was part of the deal for Hoffa to get out also. And... When, when Hoffa gets out, Chucky is supposed to take care of Hoffa. He's working for Fitzsimmons, and they are increasingly rivalrous. He's also very close with the Jackalones, who are increasing in the in mob interest generally. So, so Chucky, he's stuck sorry, between two worlds. I'm just trying to give the audience context. Yep. So yep. the, the Jackalone brothers are uh, the Detroit mob street bosses. They've always been Hoffa's contacts in the underworld dating back to, or not always, but started to be Hoffa's contacts in the underworld probably around the 1950s. Um, they were his point men uh, in the mob. The mob were Hoffa's benefactors. They helped him get into office, uh, became the Teamsters president in 1957, became one of the more uh, prominent uh, political figures in, in the entire world, one of the most well-known faces, uh, uh, you know, an icon in so many different ways. He's eventually taken down by the federal government for bribery and jury tampering and fraud, sent to prison um, in 1967, and he comes out um, in 1970, the end of 71? Yep, December 71. Yeah, and in order to get out, he... Uh, him and his Teamster uh, allies arranged a commutation from the Nixon White House, uh, and that's kind of where we are right now, Hoffa coming out of prison and realizing in that commutation, or understanding in that commutation, that he couldn't run uh, for Teamster's president again for, was it 10 years? 
1980, so that would have been nine years. Nine years. And he was kind of on a quest uh, to reclaim the Teamsters Union, despite the fact that his former mob benefactors, the Giacalone brothers and their allies really around the country, not just in Detroit, uh, didn't want him to return because he was kind of too difficult to deal with. Would you say that's a good way to... Yes, I would say that's right. I would go beyond that and say it's not just that he was too difficult to deal with. It wasn't well understood, and I think I make this clear in the book, you know, it's always been kind of loosely described that Hoffa was controlled by the mob or in the pocket of the mob. That was not true when he ran the Teamsters Union. And Chucky made this very clear with a lot of examples. Hoffa had an arm's length relationship with them, especially with regard to the pension fund. And Hoffa was in charge of the loans. He had a you know a fifty thousand dollar fee just to consider the loans. And as Chucky made clear, he often said no. So Hoffa, they, the, the 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 mob around the country was dependent upon him for these loans, and this becomes really clear in those uh, early 60s FBI tapes that I talk about in the book. But um, the mob is dependent on these loans, but they can't force the loans. They have to do it on Hoffa's terms. When Hoffa goes to jail and Fitzsimmons gets in charge, that wall collapses entirely. Fitzsimmons turns over the, the, um, the loans entirely to Alan Dorfman, who was very close to the mob. And so... He was a mob frontman that was originally from Detroit and then eventually... Uh, gravitated to Chicago. Right. I actually think he was from, I thought he was from Chicago. His dad was Red Dorfman. Red Dorfman, yeah. Well, they, they had spent a lot of time in Detroit and were connected right. to a lot of the right. Detroit records. Right. In any event, the, the mob is really gorging on the tension fund like never before, and Fitzsimmons just basically let them in the door. And so Hoppe gets out, and he wants to get it back, and the, the mob has no interest in this. They've got the perfect setup, and they don't want him to come back because, as you say, he's too difficult to deal with. And plus... He can't get back because of this legal objection, the legal the legal condition. Um, so this was driving him kind of crazy. And Chucky's in two camps at this point because also we should mention that uh, Chucky and his mother Sylvia were also very close to the Giacalone brothers. Tony Giacalone, who was the face of the Detroit mob for uh, over a half a century, was you know referred to as Chucky as Uncle Tony. Um, I think one one of my favorite passages in the book is a. Uh, um, when Chucky's recounting uh, seeing the movie Goodfellas and, and remembering the scene where Robert De Niro takes a, the young Henry Hill uh, aside and, and tells him, you know, you just learned the two greatest things in life. Uh, you know, don't tell the cops anything and never rat on your friends. And he says, I, can, I could envision Tony Jack taking me aside and telling me the same thing. He said it was exactly like that. And every time he saw that movie, that's exactly yeah. what he thought about. Yeah. So, so Chucky's so caught a, in these two camps. This is important to understand. Yeah. Hoffa, Chucky is intimately close with Hoffa and intimately close with Anthony Giacalone. And that's the key to understanding the extremely difficult position he was in both before and after the disappearance. So, yeah, so let's, let's kind of go to there, uh, go to that point and, and talk about uh, the falling out and, and the difficult situation Chucky found himself in and how he was trying to kind of navigate it uh, and yeah. to the, the best of his ability. That. Yeah, so... The falling out occurred because of a couple of things. One, it wasn't it wasn't much of a falling out, but a lot of things were happening in '74. One, when Hoffa started attacking Fitzsimmons and started threatening to expose mob ties with the union, this puts Chucky in a very bad position because he works for Fitzsimmons, and uh, Hoffa is asking Chucky to do things for him like he always did. Uh, Chucky has a hard time doing that because Fitzsimmons is his boss. At one point in 74, when Chucky does some things to try to help Hoffa win back Local 299, Fitzsimmons actually exiles Chucky to Alaska, just to right. give you a sense of what difficult position he was in. Did, did, Hoffa, have any, and, did Hoffa have anything to do with the, the trying to vanquish uh, Chucky all the way to Alaska? It's like you know sending someone to Siberia. Say that again? Sorry. I said, did, did uh, Hoffa have anything to do with the attempt to move Chucky out to Alaska? It's like, you know, Not it's like all. being vanquished to Siberia. No, that was Fitzsimmons. It was Fitzsimmons. Okay. This, is, this is what Chucky told me. It actually was reported in the Detroit papers I later found, later discovered. Basically, in 74, so Fitzsimmons, Hoffa's, Chucky was in this terrible position. Fitzsimmons wanted him out there with Hoffa to keep him quiet. That was his job in the Teamsters. Chucky was out there with Hoffa, and Hoffa wanted him to help Hoffa, as he always did. And the mob wanted him to kind of try to calm Chucky, to calm Hoffa down. So Chucky had this; it was in this impossible position. When Chucky, when Hoffa asked Chucky to help him with some local 299 matters to help 
uh, elevate Dave Johnson and to help the Hoffa interests in Local 299 who were running against Dickie Bird Fitzsimmons, Frank Fitzsimmons' son. And Local 299 was the Hoffa power base in Detroit, just for the audience to understand. That was the Teamsters local on Trumbull Avenue down in southwest Detroit. Correct. And Hoffa was using that as as a foundation despite the legal problems we just discussed, to try to get get back in the union. Anyway, Chucky was doing business for him there, and Fitzsimmons found out about it, and he basically exiled him to Alaska. He sent him to Alaska, and Chucky spent three days in Alaska until apparently the Jackalones called, or maybe it was the Provenzanos, I can't remember, and said to Fitzsimmons, that's not going to work out. And Chucky came back to Detroit, but it was a lesson because it taught Chucky who his boss was and who paid his paycheck, and that basically also Hoffa couldn't do anything to help him when it came to the, to his union job. So that was one thing that came between them. Was that because the, was Hoffa that it, had lost so much power at that point? Yeah, Hoffa had lost a ton of power, and therefore the kind of things Chucky used to do to help Hoffa when he was wielding power, Chucky had nothing to do, basically. Uh, and he so he was just sitting out there watching Hoffa stew, watching Hoffa attack his bosses, watching talk, Hoffa attack the mob. It was just an impossible situation for him. Also, Chucky said Chucky wasn't as useful as he used to be. Hoffa had primarily legal problems at this point. His son James became more prominent. He and Hoffa and James became more became closer. Chucky and James had always been rivals, and kind of jockeying for the for for Jimmy's affections. Yeah, and, and basically Jimmy's affections. This is it's a little more complicated than this, but they shifted to James, and and he became disappointed in Chucky. Chucky got divorced. Chucky's mid, Chucky's belly was growing. Chucky's financial problems were worse than ever, and Chucky wasn't doing anything for Hoffa. And the climax came when Chucky had always wanted to have a, 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 an important position in 299, local 299, and Hoffa had always promised it to him. But it became apparent to Chucky that it was never going to happen. That was the that was the occasion for their falling out on Thanksgiving in 1974 when Chucky basically said, I heard you think I'm not competent to be involved in 299. So anyway, for all of these reasons, they basically have a falling out in Thanksgiving of 1974. And they only see each other once again uh, briefly in the spring before Hoffa disappears, and they're not much in communication. At about the same time, Chucky reunites with my mom, and all of his focus and attention is on my mom at that point. Now, is there any truth to the rumor uh, from your research that throughout 1975, that because of the falling out that he had with Hoffa and because of the anger that he uh, was exhibiting towards Hoffa, that he was out about on the street spreading rumors that Hoffa had become an FBI informant? So that, that was a couple of people who said that in 1975. One of the challenges of writing this book was there's a lot of... A lot of misinformation. Tons of misinformation and rumors. That was said by several people. Chucky, of course, denies it. I was never able to confirm it or deny it. It seems extremely out of character to me. Uh, Chucky was... Hoffa was still calling Chucky, and Chucky still revered Hoffa. And, you know, Hoffa was... I mean, just to be clear, Hoffa was acting as if and even talking as if he were talking to the government. He was letting it be known, Hoffa himself, that he was either threatening to or was talking with the government. I and believe, through my research, that Hoffa was, at that point, a confidential informant. So I thought that, too. And I don't know if you saw this in the book, but I, and I can send this to you. I actually, the government, uh, it, during, the, um, during the disappearance investigation, they asked, this is part of the investigation, they wanted to settle the rumor whether Hoffa was an informant of any sort. And I have a letter from the head of the criminal division. I can show you. It says, no, he wasn't in any way cooperating with or talking to us. Yeah, you so know, I don't, to... think it's, I don't think it's true, but, I, you know, he may have been doing so in a way that the criminal division and the Justice Department didn't know about. Right. Because I've had a lot of FBI agents that I've interviewed that swear to me that he wasn't. So, yeah. That he was or wasn't? That he was not. Yeah, I don't right. think he was. No, right. that's what I'm saying. The criminal division said he wasn't either. See, I think I he think was, he... but I just, I, I don't think it's as black and white as... Yeah. Well, look, he, certainly he was talking as if he was, and he was acting as if he was, and he wanted it to be thought that he was. I don't actually think that he was. At least all the evidence I found suggests that he wasn't. But he certainly was acting that way, and that was part of his effort, which doesn't really make any sense to me, to threaten the mob that he was going to reveal everything that he knew about their relationship with the Teamsters. It was, it was really suicidal. That was, his tr- that was what he viewed as his one trump card. 
um, and, and his yep. and his ace that he could play. And uh, unfortunately, he, he played it to to his own uh, demise. Let's go to the the actual disappearance of uh, of Hoffa and talk about kind of the the crux of your book, which is trying to clear O'Brien um, from any wrongdoing in the disappearance in the conspiracy to murder Hoffa because uh, for some obvious reasons O'Brien's name has been bandied about quite a bit since the since the day it happened he's been viewed as a quote-unquote suspect um, I think it's one of those things that when you look at it at first glance it makes sense but for people that have really researched it um, people like yourself and you know I, I put myself in the same category when you start to peel back the layers of the onion you begin to realize that a lot of it is not true. A lot of it is kind of a, a red herring, uh, smoke screens, and that it, realistically, Chucky Bryan probably had nothing to do with with his surrogate father's disappearance, and was 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 you know didn't have any information that a lot of people believe that he holds to this day. So, kind of, yeah. why don't we talk about you know how you went about researching that and kind of clearing uh, clearing up some of this uh, misinformation and, and yeah. setting the record straight. So maybe it'll be helpful if I basically just... So I agree with you, uh, with everything you just said, and that's what the current FBI believes and has believed for 20 years, even though they haven't said it publicly. Maybe it'd be helpful if I briefly stated what the circumstantial evidence was against him. Yes, please. Um, This is why, and what what, uh, uh, Jack is about to tell everyone is, you know, lay out the the evidence that, like, at first glance, could make you believe that, Chucky O'Brien had something to do with, with Hoffa's disappearance and, and, and there was a lot of evidence. It's understandable that the agents early on focused on Chucky. There was a lot of reasons to be suspicious of him. One reason was is that James pointed the finger at him very early. That was the thing that really got James Jr., right? James, yeah, James Hoffa, yeah, the son. So Chucky was in the vicinity. He was actually in the very parking lot of the Moxus Red Box, both the morning of and the morning after the disappearance, waiting to catch a ride. I mean, of all the places that he could have been, and this is where he had been doing for a week, he was in the exact parking lot where the Hoffa disappeared from. Wasn't he staying at a uh, residence about you know half a mile away? Yeah, he was staying with Marvin and Betty Adele, his best friends. He didn't have a car. They would Marvin and Adele would drive him every morning to the corner of that parking lot where he would be picked up by Bobby Holmes Jr. and taken, driven downtown. So it was only about, a, I think, uh, Hoffa disappeared from a uh, shopping mall parking lot uh, on 15 and Telegraph in Bloomfield Township, Michigan, and the Adels lived about a mile and a half west. So it was a been it had been less than a five minute drive from the yeah, Adel exactly. house to indeed, the and parking. Indeed, uh, this never panned out. But some of the early theories was is that Chucky drove Hoffa back to the Adels. Right, and he was killed there. Yes, I've heard that. That was there was never any evidence for that. But that was an early theory. And they lived on an apple orchard, and. I believe, and now... I actually went to their house in 74, and it was kind of on an open land, but I don't remember if it was an apple. It's actually, it's right down the street from where I grew up, so I know know all these these, uh, locations like the back of my head. It wasn't far from the mafia, Red Fox. Um, So the morning morning of the disappearance, Chucky was scheduled to go to Toronto, and he he didn't go to Toronto for the meeting. He said because he was being transferred to Florida, he had no reason to go. This was perfectly in character for Chucky to miss a meeting or not do something he was supposed to do. But on that day, it seemed consequential because he stayed in Detroit and the day Hoffa disappeared. He was at the Teamsters Union downtown minding his business, and there was, a, of all things, a frozen fish. Did we tell the frozen fish story? Yes. You, we, let's tell the frozen fish story okay. because there, there was, was a frozen fish that was delivered to the Teamsters Union from a Teamsters official in Alaska. It was melting. It was for Bobby Holmes. Bobby Holmes was out of town in Toronto. And Bobby Holmes was an executive uh, in 299, right? Yep. And it's a senior team two official in 299. Chucky volunteered to take the fish to uh, Viola Holmes' house, to the Holmes home. He knew Viola. He knew Bobby. He didn't have anything to do that day. He also didn't have a car. So he borrows a car from the son of Anthony Giacalone, Joey Giacalone. Who at that time was, I believe, like, you know, 22, 23 years old, 24 years old. Very young, and it was a pretty new car, and they had grown up together as friends, and Chucky had kind of raised him. And and Joey well, owned and a... Like, you know, they were very, very close friends. Joey so owned he, a brand new 1975 Mercury, Mercury Marquis. Marquis. Yep. So he gets the car, he puts the frozen salmon in the car, and he drives. This is all known and corroborated. 
and he drives to Viola Holmes' house where he takes this melting salmon into her house. It melts all over her floor. She yells at him. He stays around and shoots the shit with them aimlessly, as she said. Didn't seem to have a care in the world. He left between 2.20 and 2.30. And um, Hoffa was supposed to have been picked up, according to Hoffa, at 2.30. So... And the, home, and the Holmes house was a good 20 minutes, probably, from I can't the remember if it was 15 or 20 minutes away, yeah. but Chucky would have been very late, and it would have been very strange for him to be sitting around shooting the shit if he was leaving to go pick up Hoppe, whom he hadn't seen in eight or nine months for an important assignment for Anthony Giacalone. That's right. one, one of the many odd things about this. So he leaves. We know he leaves Viola Holmes' house between 2.20 and 2.30, and there's no... And he doesn't have any alibi... There's no one that claims to have seen him again until about 4 o'clock back at, at Local 299. And since there's this hour and 40-minute gap, it was assumed that that would have been time enough for him to have picked up Hoffa, maybe picked up uh, the murderers, or taken Hoffa to the murderers, delivered him there, and then driven the car back. And it was that absence of time, plus a couple of other things I'll mention, that led them to focus on him. All of this took place in the general area of the Moscow Red Fox. Um, it was widely thought, I think this was one of the things that led the FBI astray early on. They assumed that Hoffa uh, would have only gotten in the car voluntarily, that he couldn't have been sort of knocked over the head or shot in broad daylight. He must have gotten in the car voluntarily since no one saw anything violent. And it was assumed that Chucky was one of the very, very few people he would get in the car with. I think that was a, a crazy assumption. If Chucky had grown up, had, had dr- driven up, 30 minutes late, as it would have been by the time he got there, and he hadn't seen Hoffa in eight months. Yeah. And it just it's just a very strange thing to think Hoffa would just get in the car after he'd been expecting someone else and, and waiting for That's what I've always an hour said. at that point. Yeah. I mean, this you, you, you got to put context to it. You, you say it right off the bat, oh, Hoffa was a, a surrogate father to Chucky, so Hoffa would feel comfortable getting in the car with Chucky. Okay, yeah, but then you, you add context to it, you color it up, you let everyone know what the nuances that were going on at that time, and then doesn't it doesn't make sense. Yeah, right. So the main piece of evidence against them, the circumstantial evidence, and the thing that I puzzled over for the longest time, all of that so far, Chucky had an alibi, and all of that information so far is kind of thin. The thing that really pointed uh, to, to Chucky was the fact that Hoffa, that Joey Giacalone's car was impounded nine days after the disappearance. There's a nine-day gap after the disappearance until they picked up the car. When they picked up the car, it was an absolute mess. There had been no attempt to clean it up after this supposed uh, hit on Hoffa. Chucky's fingerprints were found all over the car because he was driving it, as he admitted to the FBI. None of Hoffa's fingerprints were found, but they did pick up Hoffa's scent in the car. That was a little bit dubious, but more importantly, they found a hair in the car that was a possible match in 1975, and then in 2000, 2000 or actually, was determined to be a uh, match Hoffa's DNA. And that was really the most damning piece of evidence against Chucky was the hair in the car. But but it's only because we knew that Chucky had possession of that car on that day. He had possession of the car on that day. We don't know what happened in the intervening nine days since he didn't use the car in the intervening nine days. The FBI eventually, I mean, I'll start telling you if you want, the reasons that they came to suspect he wasn't involved. Yeah. Those are the reasons they thought he was involved. Plus, Chucky acted completely normally on the day of the disappearance, on the night of the disappearance, on the morning of the disappearance, there was no reason to think no one who was with him thought he was acting strangely. He was just being himself, and he gave no indication that some horrible thing had happened. But once the disappearance happened, he became, he was immediately in an absolutely impossible situation because the moment that he hears from Louis Linto the morning of the 31st that Hoffa disappeared, Chucky knew exactly what happened. I don't think he knows. I think, ev- I think everyone did. Yeah, everyone did, exactly. I mean, James said he knew exactly that his dad had died. But Chucky knew, when Chucky had been privy to the conversations going on before the disappearance, he had talked, I talked about all the organized crime figures around the country who had talked to him in the last year about how concerned they were about Hoffa. Chucky knew what the consequences were of Hoffa mouthing off. He had been worried about this for a long time. And he knew that the Jackaloni brothers had been out there pleading with Hoffa to, to to stop it, essentially. So the moment Hoffa, he hears that Hoffa disappears, he immediately knows what happens. And 
it's really hard for me to imagine what he must have gone through at that point because Hoffa was like a father figure to him, and he revered and idolized Hoffa more than anyone else. And even though they had fallen out, he spoke about Hoffa then and to this day in absolutely reverential and loving terms. On the other hand, he must know immediately that his other father figure, Anthony Jackaloni, is involved. Yeah, and it's and, it's conventional wisdom, and it's pretty much known as fact now that Tony Jackaloni was the man that was put in charge of coordinating the details of the Hoffa disappearance. Yeah, would you I say that's that, true? Chucky never said that. He was one of the red lines he would never cross was saying anything bad or untoward about Anthony Jackaloni. He was completely loyal to him, but that has to be true. And based on all my research, it's true. So he, he was kind of quarterbacking it, and he was having his brother, Vito Billy Jack Jackaloni, um, as kind of his man on the scene. Uh, or that's Billy, at least the belief Vito, of a lot of people. Vito was out there with, with Tony Jackaloni at the Hoffa Lake for several of the meetings. Right. Um, so, and, 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 and Hoffa knew Vito. He didn't know him as well as he, didn't know him as well as he knew uh, Anthony, who he's very close with, but he knew Vito well. Um, so Chucky immediately has a giant problem, and this is before he became a suspect. He, he, he just lost his father, and he knows he's been murdered, and he knows he's probably been murdered by these people that he grew up with and that he's very close to, and he understands why they did it, and he understands the rules. And he's also someone who knows the whole backstory. So he is, in effect, vulnerable. Even though, even if he doesn't know what happened that afternoon, he knows the whole backstory and is vulnerable to the mob thinking that he might talk about it. Um, and then five days later, he becomes the leading suspect when the FBI puts all these facts together. They don't have really any other leads. So by the Monday after the disappearance, August 3rd or 4th, I think, I mean, Chucky suddenly the, the lead on the national new evening news is in the front page of all the newspapers as the person that the FBI thinks drove off to his death. So let's talk uh, about, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to, so let's talk about, uh, the, the fallout on the, the goldsmith angle and, the, and your family. Yep. Um, so, you know, Hoffa disappears. It, the, the, the investigation takes off and as we know, is still going on 45 years later. Um, and at some point you kind of have your own falling out with, with Hoff, with uh, Chucky. Yeah. So I'll try to be brief about this. Basically the Hoffa disappearance turns my family upside down, obviously. I mean, we had just gotten to know Chucky. He's my father. I love him. I'm close to him. And suddenly he's the leading suspect in the major crime of the century. Um, and all sorts of terrible things are being said about him. He is distraught because he thinks he's being framed. My mom has suffered from severe mental health problems. She had tried to kill herself the year before. She had a nervous breakdown, a couple of them, as a result of this. Chucky has a new family. He's trying to hold the family together. He was continued to be an amazing father, even though my mom was going into shock treatments, even though he was being pressured enormously by the government. I assume he was under pressure from the mob. So it was a it was a bad situation for our family, obviously, to put it mildly. But we remained close throughout high school, Chucky and I did very, very close. Um and then you alluded to us, you know, falling out. Again, to make a long story short, when I got to college I began to you know, when I was in high school I knew Anthony Jacqueline and Anthony Provenzano very well. I mean I would we would hang out at their house, we'd often go to dinner or lunch with, with Uncle Tony Jacqueline. Um Anthony Provenzano gave me his pool table because I loved it so much when I played it at his house. I mean, these and I, these are Anthony Provenzano was a, a Genovese crime family capo from New Jersey that was also considered a, a very primary character and uh, a conspirator in, in the Hoffa disappearances for people right. to know. And uh, Hoffa had an issue with Tony Provenzano. He was a, a former friend, ally that became an enemy. And Hoffa, in his quest to take back the Teamsters, needed to uh, make amends with Tony Provenzano, who was a, a Teamster power in his own right, to... Uh, to, to, to be able to take the Teamsters Union back. So in order to get Hoffa out in the open um, to kidnap him, they used Tony Provenzano as a, uh, as a carrot, if you will. We think. We think right. that he thought, we think that's what happened on July 30th. I'm less certain about that than I am about him meeting Anthony Jacqueline, but that's probably okay. so. In any event, I knew these guys well because Chucky knew them well, and I thought well of them because Chucky thought well of them, and I didn't. Chucky told me the mob didn't exist. I'm a teenager. I don't know any better. 
So anyway, all of this stuff I start to rethink when I go to college, and I start reading the books about the Hoffa disappearance. I start learning that the mob does exist, and some of my uncles are pretty tough guys and the violent criminals, and that Chucky has a criminal past. And I, and I look kind of objectively at the circumstantial evidence against him, so I basically start rethinking Chucky and who he is and my relationship to him. I start to worry about his impact on my life, and I especially worry about my impact on my relationship with all these guys, Chucky and Uncle Tony's, on my legal career. So to make a long story short, I cut Chucky out of my life basically when I was in law school in the late 1980s. I didn't speak to him basically for 15 or 16, 17 years. And you went to work at the Department of Justice, is that correct? Eventually I went to work at the Department of Justice. I was uh, the head of what's called the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. So then at some point in uh, this decade, uh, in the 2010s, you decided to kind of embark on this uh, journey to write a book and, and reconnect with uh, with your stepfather and, and try to clear his name. Yep. So we actually reconnected in 2004. I, for a lot of reasons, had decided I was wrong to cut him out of my life. 15, 18 years earlier, there were a lot of reasons for this, including the fact that I had my own children, and I came to realize in a way I didn't appreciate earlier how much I had hurt him, and I also came to think that what I had done to him was unfair. I asked for his forgiveness, and he gave it to me without question. We grew very close again in the 2000s. And over time, in talking to him, we would talk about Hoffa, whom he revered, and we would talk about the disappearance and what he did that day, and I just started to think about it without doing much research, and I kind of the reason you're saying a second ago, when you first look at the facts, it looks bad for Chucky, but when you second look at the facts, you see that he was the only person that talked to the FBI, of all the suspects, you see that he's still alive, even though he talked to the FBI. I tell everyone that. I was like, if Chucky O'Brien was involved in this, he, he wouldn't be alive right now. He would, he would have got two in the back of the head. Especially they wouldn't have allowed him to talk to the FBI. There's no way they would allow him to go in that room and let the FBI try to coerce him or offer him government witness protection or whatever. There's just simply no way at all. And indeed, the FBI guys, whom I became very close with, were shocked when he showed up for the interview because they suspected that he did it and therefore thought he wouldn't talk to them. And one of them, Robert Garrity, said on the way out, he said, I'm sure he's going to get whacked because they believed he was involved and the fact that he was talking to the FBI, they assumed that he was going to get killed. Forty-five years later, it looks like pretty good a pretty good reason to think he wasn't involved. He never would have had that conversation. So in addition to using uh, Chucky as a source, you interviewed dozens of ex-FBI agents that worked the case. A lot of people that I've also interviewed and used as, as great um, you know, uh, pieces of, of, of research and, and, and people to fill in gaps and uh, kind of talk about building those relationships with those yeah. ex-feds and really ha- having them color up this. Dozen, a couple of dozen officials, but only about a dozen FBI officials. And I'll just pick out four or five who were had a special role. I mean, amazingly, uh, through I became very close to the four original agents who worked the case. Two in Detroit, Robert Garrity and Jim Esposito. Those were the original FBI lead agents on the Hoffa case. Those are the guys that wrote the Hoffa memo. That was Garrity. Uh, Esposito was the guy that wrote the deposition that to get the Joey Giacalone car in which he swore that he, there was probable cause to believe. The only piece of physical was. evidence ever recovered in the case? Yep, exactly. And Esposito swore that he believed that Hop, that Chucky used that car to drive Hoppe to his death. Jim Garrity, who was the lead agent in Detroit, and uh, Al Sproul, who was uh, one of the top agents on the case in New York. And these guys had stayed friends since the 70s. They continued to think about the case. They continued to obsess about the case. I kind of come on the scene, and they, we start meeting regularly in New York, and we have these great conversations where we basically teach each other about the Hoppe case. I learn from them. They learn from me. And amazingly, we became friends, and I consider us close friends, and they were a huge and important source for me understanding what happened in the 70s and what the original idea of the case was, um, you know, learning about Picardo and the whole Picardo angle, why Dooley thought that there was a confession by this guy named Ralphie Picardo. Who had been a driver for Tony Provenzano and was in prison, and some of Provenzano's guys had gone and visited, allegedly, Picardo in prison in the days after Hoffa disappeared, and allegedly had given some type of confession to Picardo. Is yeah. that correct? And this had a big influence on the early understanding of the case, but... Basically, the FBI came not to believe Picardo. This is another one of those myths that people still talk about today as if it were true, but the FBI basically found so many holes in Picardo's story 
that they came not to believe him. But again, these four FBI guys helped me to work through all of this. They helped me to understand how the mafia worked. They helped me to understand to recreate the time in which the disappearance happened. Another agent I talked to a lot was Andrew Sluss. He was an agent from 93, I think, until 2008. He served the longest on the case, as the case agent on the case. He was the one who originally came to believe that it was impossible for Chucky to have done it. He was the one, for a lot of reasons, some of which we've discussed, he was the one who originally reached out to Chucky to try to exonerate him if he'd take a lie detector test. Um, you know, there were other people I met, Lou Fischetti, who was the head of the organized crime squad, who worked the Hoffa case for a long time, the current agent on the case, whose name I won't mention, um, and some lawyers, some assistant U.S. attorneys who were involved in the case. So, and also some people in between, I mean, people that worked the case from Washington and the like. So anyway, I spent a lot of time talking to them. I spent a lot of time in the FBI documents, not just the ones that were FOIA'd, but some other ones, including some of the most valuable stuff I got was summaries of the grand jury information, which really helped me to fill in the time gaps where where Chucky was and where everybody else was, and helped me to understand why the FBI came to think it was impossible for Chucky to have picked uh, Hoff up and to have made it back to where he was at local 299 by 4 o'clock. I have an appendix at the end that explains that evidence. Um, so anyway, I went through... I spent a lot of time reading everything I could and talking to everyone I could. And I think I made a pretty compelling case that Chucky was not involved that day. And really the best piece of evidence, in my mind, it's not evidence, but the best, the clinching piece of information is that for 20, 25 years now, the FBI has been confident Chucky wasn't involved. And they were going to exonerate him, right? They had promised him a, yep, a letter of exoneration him. if he did some type of interview back in 2012, 13. Right. And then there was this kind of big piece of breaking news that came out uh, regarding a former Detroit mobster by the name of Anthony Zerilli, whose dad, or he was the uh, the longtime underboss of the crime family in Detroit. His dad had been the longtime godfather. He came out at the end of his life and pointed the finger at, at that time, was the boss of the Detroit Mafia. His first cousin, uh, Jack Toko, uh, told uh, the FBI that they had uh, taken uh, Hoffa to a piece of property that Toko owned in Oakland Township. They went and dug up that piece of property for a day or two in 2013, didn't come up with anything. And tell me if I'm uh, uh, stating your opinion correctly, because that was kind of a little bit of egg on the FBI's face, they kind of backed off from exonerating O'Brien. Yeah. That's what I think happened, and that's what people basically told me what happened. Just to back up a little bit, they had promised Chucky, if he came in an interview with them and told him the truth, that they would give him a letter stating that he was not a target or subject in the investigation, essentially exonerating him from the charge for over 40 years that they had let out of the bag and they had pushed that he was the guy who did it. And this charge had set out there they got this idea that Chucky, Chucky had taken his effective father to his death. It was terribly devastating for Chucky for four decades. The FBI knew for a long time it wasn't true, and it's, but it's just very hard. It's easy for them to leak things and make charges. It's very hard for them to pull it back. But they promised that they would if he came and talked. He came and talked to them for four hours. He wasn't well. It was a legally fraught situation. If he had told any lie, they could have put him in jail for lying. They determined that he told the truth. They told us that they determined he told the truth. They told us the letter was forthcoming. And then this dig happened. And it was hugely embarrassing for the FBI and the U.S. Attorney. And, and they were just coming point, off a dig from six years before that, which was also kind of embarrassing for yeah. them at the Hidden Dreams Ranch in 2006. Exactly. And at that point, the question arose for the politicians, the political appointees, what's in it for us? To let him off the hook, it's just going to be more egg on our face to admit that the theory of 40 years was false. So even though they had promised it to him, even though the U.S. Attorney's Office itself had promised it, even though the FBI had invited Chucky to do this and made a promise to him, they just didn't follow through. And it was terribly disappointing for me and for him, obviously. So let's just wrap up with... Uh Two quick more subjects to touch on. First off, so after you, you, you took seven years to write this book, you, you talked to so many different people that are in the know, um, and uh, you believe, from what I've read and, and, uh, uh, and seen, you believe this was a, uh, an all-Detroit mob job. Is that correct? Or that's what the FBI is telling I believe this is basically what the FBI told me. Now, when you say all-Detroit, I still believe the basic story 
that this operation was improved, approved by the East. I don't think... Yeah, I do, too. I don't think that Detroit could have carried this out. It, the, the, this hit had national consequences, huge consequences. But there's always been kind of debate about whether it was a New Jersey job, whether yeah, it was exactly. a Genovese crew, right. was it the Jackaloni yeah. crew, was it a combination believe, of both? Yes. And I believe, and a lot of, so for a lot of reasons, I think the whole angle that these New Jersey guys came in and did it and then left, that I don't think that held up. There's a lot of reasons why it didn't hold up in the 70s. But then the FBI starting in the 90s, I think you've done reporting on this, the FBI starting in the 90s, I'm not going to mention names, you might want to, they... Through informant evidence and through surveillance evidence, they they came to believe, with with good reason, that it was a Detroit job carried out essentially by Vito, who they think picked him up, and another man who they think killed him. And Billy Jackaloni was unaccounted for on that afternoon by his FBI and state. For. There was, in they state never police. found a sink, and they did a lot of interviewing. They had no information at all about where he was right. on the day of the disappearance. Well, he, at about ten, I, I, at about ten o'clock, he had he had two tales. He had a Michigan State police tale and an FBI tale, and he was able to shake both of them at about ten thirty in the morning. And he, and or and they didn't pick him back up or or get a a beat on where he was until about dinner time. Yeah, so I didn't even know that. I just know that they. I just know I didn't know that actually. That's news to me. They. Um, but they, but they basically they, they lost them all that day, and um, so through this, there's other, there's other, by the way, there's other surveillance reasons why. One of the other things we didn't talk about this, but I'll just say it quickly. One of the many pieces of tiny pieces of evidence that over the time led the FBI agents to think Chucky wasn't involved, and this came up in the interview he had in 2013, was that he he was very close to the Jackalones, and he was driving Vito uh, as he often did from Detroit to. Florida for the winter, and Carr as part of Gamtax, Operation Gamtax, which was the basically the effort in the, the uh, 90s. 90s, I believe, to go after the Detroit mob in a kind of systematic way. Through Operation Gamtax, they had bugged the car, and where Chucky was driving Vito, and I can't remember if it was the trip down to Florida or the trip back, but in the course of this, it was just at the time that the Jack Nicholson movie about Jimmy Hoffa had come out. And Chucky and Vito are chit-chatting away, and somehow or another the Nicholson film comes up, and Chucky starts talking in a way, according to the FBI agent who told me about this, Chucky starts talking in a way and asking Vito questions about, you know, we start talking about the Nicholson movie, and then Chucky starts speculating about what might have happened on that afternoon on July 30th, 1975, in a way that the agents listening in concluded made crystal clear he had no idea, zero idea what happened. And at the same time, Vito Giacalone completely clams up and just doesn't talk. And it becomes pretty clear that he told Chucky to shut up, and he doesn't say anything. That was another of the many pieces of evidence that led the FBI to think Chucky wasn't involved and that Vito might have been. Last question. The new movie that's coming out this month with Martin Scorsese, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, they're telling everyone that they've solved the the Hoffa mystery and that Frank Sheeran, a a teamster from Delaware and a hitman that uh, had worked for Hoffa in the past, had been the one that had killed Hoffa. Is that true or not? I just think it's rubbish. And I wrote it. If the listeners are interested, I wrote an essay in the New York Review of Books. They go through just some of the reasons. I'm going to write another essay that Sheeran's confession is completely preposterous. Well, this has been an amazing interview. Uh, Jack Goldsmith, Harvard Law professor, legal analyst on a number of uh, big cable networks, national networks. You can see him on a regular basis uh, imparting wisdom on a number of legal issues. His new book is called In Hoffa's Shadow, A Stepfather, A Disappearance in Detroit, and My Search for the Truth. It is excellent. Go get it wherever books are sold. And Jack, uh, just a thousand thank yous for coming on the show. Scott, and, thank you, uh, thank you folks so much for having me on. And I should add that I learned a lot from you about the Detroit family, and I'm grateful to you for that. Thank you, man. I, it's it's a labor of love, and uh, trying to uh, you know get the truth out there is always the most important thing in terms of my research. And I know that this this book that you just wrote uh, goes a long way in that in that regard. So thank you so much, Jack, you for what so you did, and thanks for coming on coming on the podcast. Yep. Thanks, thanks Jack. Yep. Bye bye.